From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. On this episode of Land Stories, I am joined in the studio with Bill Castanier, the president of the Historical Society of Greater Lansing, and Bill has been on our program before. For those of you that are loyal listeners, you would have noted that we had Bill in here in the studio a uh, little while ago to discuss a historic project devoted to the history of Interstate 496. And the reason why I invited Bill on the program today is to discuss another program that the Historical Society of Greater Lansing is working on, and that is an exhibit of panoramic photos. And it's an exhibit that will be on display, and perhaps is on display, actually, by the time that uh, this show goes to air, at the Library of Michigan in the Lake Erie Room. So, Bill, I want to give you a very warm welcome again to the program, and thank you for coming on, and tell us a bit about this photo exhibit. Sure. Thank you, David, for having us today. The photo exhibit, the idea for it started several years ago when a friend of mine, Dan Barber, and I would get together for breakfast, and he collected panoramic images. And he said, wouldn't it be fun to do an exhibit of panoramas? I said, sure. Why not? <laughs> it's all, all for it. And then during COVID, Dan died, not from COVID, but some, from some other ailment. And we still had the photographs, and we decided, you know, let's do a exhibit in his memory, but also bring it in statewide. So we worked at the Library of Michigan, and we are going to have 55 panoramic views on exhibit at the Library of Michigan of all sizes. But a panoramic is basically a long, narrow photograph that was taken primarily in the early part of the last century. And uh, they're spectacular in their own way. Lansing City Pulse had an article on it, and the um, writer, Larry Cosentino, came up with the cleverest line. He said, panoramas are different because they're part of the unselfie generation. Uh-huh. And it was very clever that he noted the difference. I mean, now we take sure. pictures of individuals standing in front of things. Back then, you took photographs of thousands of people standing in front of things. Sure. And it's, so it's a whole different kind of way of looking, at, but it's part of the culture, really. It explains who we are as people and how we change. Absolutely. And I want to uh, expand upon that point a little bit. I have um, had a chance to look at some of these panoramic photos myself. I actually looked at a fair amount here just a little while ago. And that is absolutely one of the things that first stands out when you look at these groups of photos is that many of them are panoramic shots of a lot of people. And some of them were taken of social clubs or of uh, places that were very well known to be places that people would gather. And and then some of them were also from Michigan State University. So there's always a challenge whenever we're talking about photography on an audio uh, recording. But nonetheless... Yeah, very difficult. <laughs> we, we shall do our best. And uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the subjects that were in sure. these. And how does that relate to not only that theme that you just brought up about these being group experiences as opposed to a very personal experience when one takes the phone out and you know, shoots a picture of himself, but then also the social groups and and who were in them. Sure. Probably one of the largest uh, 
what I'd call the normal uses of panoramic photographer was to take photographs of soldiers at a boot camp or going off to war or returning from war. And we have several of those, and the majority of them are from Camp Custer. But they also tell you about a time when we were getting ready to go into World War One, and soldiers were going to Fort Custer or Camp Custer at the time and being trained in tens of thousands. And there's mass photographs of them. There's also some really interesting photographs of some Western Michigan businesses that got together for camp picnics and they posed for photographs. Michigan State University, there's a lot of band photographs, but there's also some pretty dramatic shots, panorama views of the campus itself. And they're almost 360 degrees, which are pretty startling to see. And you have to imagine this in your head. You take a group of people lined up in a semi curve because the way the panorama camera moves across it, you want it to make it look like a straight line. But sure. in order to do that, the people had to be standing in a curve or you got really strange abstractions. Uh, there's photographs of sporting events. Um, University of Michigan's second game in their new stadium, but it was the dedication with Ohio State. There's a heavyweight boxing match. There's all kinds of those. Uh, those were popular too because they drew a lot of people. And the object behind this was the photographic companies that took these made a living selling individual prints to the people in them. Even though you were just a tiny smudge, as sure. Larry called them in the article today, sure. people bought them and sent them home, especially if you're soldiers. One of the questions we all had was, how much did they cost? It's just like, I nobody knew. I mean, I contacted sure. every major archives of photographic history in the United States that I could find. They were all polite. They all got back to me, which was really unusual. Mm -hmm. And they said, we don't know. We have nothing in our records. Well, we happened to ask a local postcard collector. She's a really good researcher. And she goes, you know, I think I've got something about that. And we go, okay. She found a postcard from LeClear's Photographic Company in Lansing that they had sent out to their customers advertising a panoramic view of MSU faculty for $1.50. Okay. We actually probably, we're, we've sent it around to those museums who are going to add it at least to their information. They mm -hmm. want and that's the kind of thing that, there was a lot of serendipitous things that happened because of this. Oh, sure. And the opportunity for people to be able to see images of not only very important events in world history, and when you're looking at an image, for example, of people at a place like Camp Custer, during the First World War, you're, you are looking at a historic artifact that refers back to a very substantial event. And what you mentioned, Bill, a moment ago about the business side of this panoramic photography business is an interesting one. The business model, I think, we can look at it now and think, well, that was actually quite clever. If you have a panoramic photo that has 100 people in it, and you have the opportunity to make 100 copies and sell each individual a copy of that, well, then you have a business plan. And it sounds to me like that's a little bit of what was going on with some oh, of these. Oh, absolutely. And one of the major companies for Camp Custer was out of Chicago, Kaufman and Fabry. They became famous because they shot the earthquake in San Francisco. Sure. And then they also shot the World's Fair or exhibition in uh, Chicago. So they were pretty famous. And one of the techniques they used that many photographers used, I still haven't totally figured it out myself, but it was taking photographs from kites. They would use up to 15 kites okay. to lift a 50-pound camera in the air and then trigger it. 
which to me is how did they keep it totally still because he could have no movement. Sure, with the photography of the day, yes. And that technological component to it is one that I actually think when we look at an old photograph, panoramic or a non-panoramic photo, but the panoramic ones, I think this uh, illustrates it even greater. When you look at an old photograph, there's a lot that went into that artifact being produced that doesn't go into the way that photos are produced nowadays. I can take a device out of my pocket, a little mini computer, take a photo, put it back in my pocket, and then if I want to print it out, I can print it out. If I want to send it electronically, I can send it electronically, and so on and so forth. It's a totally different interaction than an event. And those photos, when they were taken, a panoramic photo like that absolutely would have been an event, and it would have been an event that was part of Another event, for example, one of the photos in that collection that I noticed is one that was taken out at Lake Lansing called Pine Lake back then. I think it still would have been called Pine Lake. Yes, it would have. And this is a just a absolutely incredible snapshot of a moment in time that we don't usually get to see of the past. This is people that uh, were in some you know celebration out there and some folks listening will know, others will know in a second because I will tell you if you didn't that... There was an amusement park out there at one time. And by out there, of course, I'm, I'm referencing, geographically speaking, uh, related to the Lansing area. We are, we're doing this program here in downtown Lansing. And so Lake Lansing, the Pine Lake area, at one time was a you know, well-known resort area. That, the reason why I bring that up is that when you can look at an old photo and, and understand that there was a real process involved in that that when these photographers would come around, it, it created an event out of it. I think it adds an extra bit of respect. Uh, and maybe respect isn't the right word, but it's the one that pops in my mind. Just a real appreciation for the fact that we have these items from the past. Well, one of the things that makes it interesting, we've got a manual which you can download from online of, for one of the cameras that they used at the time, the Circuit 6 it probably was. Kodak held the license to that. It was a Canadian inventor, but Kodak had the license in the United States. If you were to use a circuit six, they delineated about 20 individual steps that you had to take to set the camera up before you could even think about taking a snapshot. And it included everything from the speed you wanted it to rotate, the opening of the lens, make sure you, you use a key to wind the gears. Mm. There, it just went, it was like a checklist on an airplane. Sure. And then... There was another element that you always, not always think about is you had hundreds of people sometimes. Every one of those people had to stand absolutely still. They could not chew gum. They couldn't blink. They could Any kind of movement shows up in a blur. Sure. Uh, one that comes to mind is from Olivet, and there's this blur really in front of the photograph. Some Somebody had brought their dog, it looks like. Okay. So, and the dog wasn't standing still sure. for taking a photograph. So, and then you had, to, because people were so distant from each other, from one end to the other, uh, not only could they run from one end to the other and get in both sides of the photograph, but also that distance created problems with shadows. Oh. Light might have fallen differently on various parts of, of it. Of course. The photographers had to be geniuses to take these things. Plus, they're lugging like 75, a minimum 75 pounds of equipment. And it had, couldn't, be a, couldn't be an overcast day. It couldn't be a sunny day. Had to just I, I don't know how they did it. And yeah. then when you're all done, they've got these, uh, toward the latter part of this, they had canisters of film that could be up to 20 feet long. Where did you and how did you first develop the film 
And then how did you print that film? Um, there's records of people developing them in bathtubs. Oh, sure. Uh, but there was a lot of, there was tremendous complexity. And today it's like shooting, you're, you're done. <laughs> there's yeah. nothing to it. Yeah, you know, think about it. That I could take a device out of my pocket and take a picture that has, well, actually pretty good quality to it. Uh, especially when one thinks back to the early days of digital photography when you could spend $50,000 on a camera that took a picture that was of a lot less quality than what you would get now with your iPhone in your pocket. And that whole uh, equipment aspect of this is something that we definitely should keep in mind because the, the whole production of these prints, and you discussed, for example, the development part of it, what Bill's referring to, and this is a sign of the times, I suppose, that I feel it necessary to explain this a little bit, but before the days of digital photography... A photograph was printed on paper. It was a special type of paper, and it was printed based on what was called the negative. To make a long story short, film photography at its basis exposes a special type of acetate material to light, and in doing that, an image is created. It's, it's a negative image, an old-fashioned, what we now call analog photography, and then the development process uses special chemicals to transfer that image to a larger piece of paper, and it reproduces it, if it's taken in color, if it's taken in black and white, uh, with the light profile, the color profile, that is present at the time. So that's a totally different procedure than simply, I'm going to take a picture of that pretty blue car parked in front of my house because I think it's cool. I'm going to take the phone out of my pocket, snap the photo, and be on my merry way. Yeah, it wasn't, even though... Photography was democratized really in the early 20th century by Kodak. To print these massive things, to load the film in the camera, and then to figure out a way to print it, they used contact prints for the earliest ones, so they're about three foot, and we've got an example of one. But the later ones that were 20 feet had to be with great difficulty that you printed these. Now, they probably didn't sell those in multiples. Right. The ones that sold in multiples were anywhere from two to three feet, probably wide. And uh, they marketed, you know, they got the people's addresses and mailed it to their family and asked if they'd like to buy a print for a dollar and 50 cents. I think with the soldiers, I can give you a real classic example. For the longest time, my grandfather had a panorama view of his boot camp, which was at Great Lakes, Illinois. He was in the Navy. He was a submariner, World War One. And it was ripped in half. And I didn't think of it until he was much older to ask him, where's the rest of it? He said, well, his buddy couldn't afford to have one. He ripped it in half of it and gave it to his friend. So somewhere yeah. out there, we have the half that I own mm -hmm. on exhibit, but somewhere out there, there's another half to that photograph. It's kind of interesting floating around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really something. And a buck and a half was quite a bit of money. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Nin Back then. 1919. That was, yep. a, that was a goodly bunch of money. And, sure. Uh, you know, th that probably tradition started, what, the Civil War where people took photographs and sent it to their loved ones? So very much. Remember them? Very much. And actually during the Civil War is when photography in the United States really became even widespread. Up to that point, it hadn't been. Alexander Gardner and uh, Matthew Brady are two men that probably were more responsible than anybody else for popularizing photography in the United States because they took photos of the aftermath of Civil War battles. And then Matthew Brady would publish the photos, put them in his New York City art studio, maybe two, three, four, five days after the event happened. 
back then, that was absolutely the most astounding thing for people to be able to walk down the street into his photo studio and see actual photographs of a war that was taking place hundreds of miles away. And one of the most valuable things that any Civil War soldier carried on him, if he was lucky enough to have it, was a photograph. It's usually a very small one of his mother or his wife or some other significant relations that meant more to him than anything. The, the historian Drew Gilpin Faust, in a book she wrote about the Civil War called This Republic of Suffering, even in that book she argues that those photos were so important for the men that had them because it was the only connection they had. Oh, they're with, with thousands of miles ones. away from home. Yep. And letters went back and forth, but they took weeks. Sure. And, and these panoramic photos, I imagine they were a similarly important artifact uh, for the organizations, for the individuals that were in them. By the time we get to after World War II, so many years after these photographs were taken, then I think there's sort of a second a second stage. I like the term you used, dem uh, democratization of photography. And after World War II, cameras get smaller, they get cheaper, and of course you have the Polaroid that comes out, which is kind of the very first version of what our phones accomplish for us. Where did you get these photos from, the, okay. the originals? Where did they come from? Okay, well, Dan Barber, sure. a collector, collected a number of them. Now, he scoured antique shops. Uh, however, then we went to archives to supplement it. So we went to Grand Rapids a Public Library Archive, a University of Michigan, the Clements Collection, mm -hmm. which has a massive collection. We went to MSU Museum, MSU Archives. So we went to a lot of different uh, places to find uh, photographs to fit in that we knew we wanted to represent different things. Uh, and that worked out well. We could have probably easily exhibited 100. Sure. It wouldn't have been difficult at all. Uh, the only difficult would be hanging them and finding a room large enough for them because these are, these are big photographs. Sure. They're out there, but generally speaking, most people do not display them anymore. You know, they've lost connection with that family member or whatever it is. Sure. Um, and they're also hard to frame. They're long. Oh, yeah. Uh, they roll up in tight little rolls, and they often crack, and mm -hmm. we have examples of that. Yep. We also have an example of some, one that was cut into pieces, even though it was a continuous photograph at one time, so the woman could lay it out flat. Uh, but they had they had some built-in problems with framing them, saving them. You'll find them in people's attics at estate sales all sure. the time. Sure. And no one knows why they have them. Yep. When was the last time you walked into a building and saw a panoramic photo? LCC has one. <laughs> yeah, besides <laughs> LCC. BC, um, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. They just aren't out there. They just don't aren't there anymore. Now you think about what it costs just to process them and have them printed yep. now. It's not an easy project. So one of the first things you always do when you do a project like this is let's look to someone else that's done this. Yep. We found one panoramic exhibit in the United States. That's all we could find. Now, really? Maybe they were before the Internet, mm -hmm. but we just could not find any where somebody had done us a, a really substantial look at panoramic photographer. Sure. And I can speak for myself now having seen all the photos in this collection, or at least most of them anyways, it's... Impressive that every area of the state is in one way or another represented. There's panoramic photos from small mining towns in the western part of the Upper Peninsula 100 years ago. There's photos of cities downstate and sort of everything in between. Absolutely. And that was important for us because we're doing it at the Library of Michigan. Right. Now, the weight of them generally is Lansing and Michigan State University. Sure. 
and we obviously don't represent all 14 of our public universities. Right. We could have, but we wanted to give a representation of what makes Michigan. Sure. And so there's a lot of uh, a lot of panoramic photographers shot a lot of natural scenes in the Upper Peninsula, and we have several of those. A lot of harbor scenes. Oh, yeah. Very common. Yep. And the other thing that photographers who are interested in making a living they hand colored a lot of a lot of the harbor scenes and they must have sold them as tourist souvenirs yeah probably. that's the other thing david that happened is once um, panoramic photography became popular postcard manufacturers developed three card wide ones five card oh, wide yeah. ones of panoramas yep. and sold them those are really unique they're some of my favorites yep boy you you just made me recall a, a memory of the last panoramic postcard I received in the mail. And I did actually receive one in wow. the mail once. It was like 20 years ago. It was from um, a friend overseas, actually. And he had mailed me a, a letter that he wrote on the back of a panoramic postcard, which I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, you're right. Those aren't, you don't see them around anymore. And and even even postcards in general, no, I, no. I, I fear that I may be correct in what I'm at about to say, which is the day shall not be long, where those get even more rare to find. Well, first, they're expensive to send. Yeah. There's probably 40 cents now somewhere in that sure. range. I collect some photographs uh, on postcards, and I send them to my friends. <laughs> I just send them an old postcard, and they go, where'd you get that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, and you were really instrumental in helping with this, is panoramic Photographs also represent a certain time and place mm -hmm. when photographs were taken of things that would not necessarily be appropriate today. Two of them that we really highlight are Buffalo Bill's Traveling Show, which was shot in Lansing in 1914, and then a photograph of an Indian encampment, which was basically part of a circus. Sure. And that was in Grand Rapids. And that was a representation of how we glamorized the Old West. And you helped frame that for us because it's a, we could have just shown those photographs. Yeah. No mention at all, but we felt it was necessary to point out that this is something that would have been inappropriate today. Right. And, but it also shows how we were, through photography, kind of uh, molding people to a certain context on what history was all about. I mean, Buffalo Bill's Old West never existed. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, of course. It was... Sure. Well, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Bill. The photos that he's referring to, uh, in, indeed, one of them is Buffalo Bill. It's actually a remarkable photograph. Yeah. you got to go down to the uh, State Library and see that thing if you can. He's standing in the middle of it. It's an older photograph, older in the sense that it's towards the end of his uh, show's run. He looks, you know, he's getting up there in years. Buffalo Bill is, I was so fascinated by that photo for a lot of reasons, one of which is the opportunity that it offered to do exactly what Bill you just mentioned, and that is providing a historical context. And I can't think of a better photo that provides that type of a cue of a much broader, deeper discussion lesson on depiction of indigenous peoples. Buffalo Bill wasn't... Well... His popularity was not limited to the United States. Oh, By any stretch of the imagination, the entire world, what the entire world thinks of as the American West is very much um, the creation of Buffalo Bill's mind, and not bad for a person who grew up in Canada. <laughs> right. You know, he's from, uh, actually grew up in Mississauga, Ontario. He was born, he was born out somewhere out in the plains, I want to say Iowa or Nebraska, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. But uh, I remember he grew up in uh, Mississauga, which is now a 
a very heavily populated suburb of Toronto. And then he moved back to the United States when I think he was 14 or 15. And he had quite the career. But uh, the imagery of not only those depictions there, but other stuff there as well, I, I actually think this is a good, probably a good point to leave off on. The historical context that an exhibit offers uh, when we are looking at photographs is really the value of having them displayed in such a way because I can look at a photo of Buffalo Bill, but when I see this five or six foot long panorama that has literally a cast of 80 people in it all lined up and every one of those people in that photo, we could look at them nowadays, we would probably more accurately call them actors. It's kind of what they were. But each character, if you want to look at it that way, represented somebody that was in society at the time. And according, that is, to what the image of society that he wanted to create would be. And, and I guess in the end, that's what all photos do, is they leave a permanent image with us of a past. And the, the context, trying to derive the context out of those photos sometimes, uh, is a real useful exercise in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. You know, and the other thing that we started noticing, and it's obvious once you start noticing it, is uh, fashions and styles. Oh, yeah. They're fascinating to look at what men and women were wearing back then. We just got a photograph that somebody brought in because they knew we were doing this. Mm -hmm. And then there was the rest of the story. He, This local Lansing gentleman, Bob Wilkes, found this photograph at an antique store, and he just fascinated him, and he went, that's from my hometown. Olivet, and then he looks and he knows people in it. There you go. And strangely enough, his mother's in it. Oh, wow. And he, he stumbled on an antique store in Lansing. Isn't that something? And the, in that photograph, there's maybe a dozen women wearing furs with little fox heads on them. Uh -huh. So it tells you about what people were wearing. Sure. You know, that type sure. of thing that you just don't think about. Uh, absolutely. Well, the exhibit then opens on Saturday? It opens Saturday, and then it runs through May. And we have a series of speakers, and you can find out the speakers that will be coming and when on our website, lansinghistory.org. Um, and it's open during regular Library of Michigan hours, which be sure to check because, for example, coming up is President's Day and they're closed sure. that weekend. Yeah. But I think people enjoy it. We want people to take a time and really get into a photograph, not just glance at it, but sure. look at who's in it. Sure. It's kind of amazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you very, thank very you. much. Thank you being on the program. I appreciate it. And thank you for all the work you do in the community for historic preservation well, and it's, remembrance. It's, it's fun important. and I think it's important. Good deal. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect, 
voices, vibes, vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship since 2016. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason Public School students. These selected students are chosen by the Mason Public Schools at the end of the fifth grade and then become a Mason Promise Scholarship through an induction ceremony. Over the course of the next six years, these students receive mentoring and support as well as introduction to career possibilities through the Pathway Program. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu hope. We're celebrating one year of LCC Connect. Lansing Community College's first podcast platform dedicated to keeping you connected with LCC and your community. Catch the vibe by visiting us at lccconnect.org and then click on the Celebrate tab to check out photos, videos, and find out how you can get involved. We are LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. If you or someone you know lives with epilepsy, be aware of an uncommon but fatal complication called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, also known as SUDEP. It is the sudden unexpected death of a person with epilepsy who is otherwise healthy. Each year, SUDEP kills 1 in 1,000 adults with epilepsy and 1 in 4,500 children with epilepsy. The American Academy of Neurology and the American Epilepsy Society have released a new medical guideline to help patients, families, and caregivers better understand SUDEP and its risk factors. A high risk factor is generalized tonic-clonic seizures that involve the entire body. The guideline shows that reducing the number of tonic-clonic seizures could lower the risk of SUDEP. If you have epilepsy, it is important that you talk with your neurologist. To learn more about SUDEP, visit aan.com slash guidelines. That's aan.com slash guidelines. Michigan residents age 25 or older may qualify for Michigan Reconnect, a program providing free or reduced tuition to students who have not earned a prior college degree. Reconnect students are responsible for books and fees, Visit lcc.edu slash reconnect for more information. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hey, hey, hey. This is Lisa A., and you're listening to Who's That Star on LCC Connect at Lansing Community College. Who's That Star is a behind-the-scenes show where I sit down and talk with the employees at the college. This is an inside look at LCC where you have a chance to learn about their passions, projects, and what inspires them both in their work and personal lives. I'm your host, Lisa Alexander, and I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to all the people who make LCC great. This show is for you to get to know the people that work at Lansing Community College a little bit more and see what makes them tick. Are you ready? Okay, let's find out who's that star. Today on Who's That Star?, we are meeting a star who was born in Masan, South Korea, but came to Michigan as an infant via his wonderful adoptive parents. He's lived in the Lansing area his whole life and graduated from East Lansing High School in 2013. After high school, he graduated from MSU in 2017 with a BA in history and a minor in sociology. 
before coming to LCC, this star worked for the Shinola store in Ann Arbor, but came back to Lansing in 2019 to work for LCC. I've never heard of this store, so I want to learn more about it. So I'm going to be asking him about that. He has a lot of different hobbies, and we're going to find out about all of them, or like at least try to talk about some of them, which includes cars, videos, board games, photography, cooking, hiking, learning languages, music, watching anime, and many more. I'm just tired thinking about all that he can do. This star works in an area of LCC that I'm excited to learn more about because I don't have much interaction with this area. I was interested in increasing some skill sets, and I ended up on this department, and so I think that it's going to be interesting, and I think you'll find out a lot of different things that we have that you didn't know about. So, all right, without further ado, let's welcome today's star. Today's star is Seth Lee Murphy. Yeah! Welcome, Seth. I'm so glad that you could come today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here. Yes, so I'm just going to jump right in, okay? So just kind of tell me, I know I gave a little introductory about, you know, who you are, but maybe you can expand on that a little bit more. Tell me a little bit about what's important to you in your life right now. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, cover the basics. Um, yeah, originally born in South Korea, but was adopted by my parents here uh, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, came to the Lansing area as an infant. Grew up in East Lansing, went to East Lansing High School, then MSU. And things that are important to me in life, kind of things that have always been important to me in life. Um, you know, I've always appreciated the little things in life. You yeah. Know, I always... Try not to take everything for granted, things like that. I like to stay close to the things that, you know, are important to you, family, friends. Right. You know, keeping, you know, loved ones close and whatnot, you know, making sure, you know, that you don't, you know, don't push anyone away. You right. Know, always include people in your life that you've always cared about, things like that. Um, but I've also, along with that, always, what else is important to me is, you know, keeping your mental and physical well-being, keeping those well. It's important. Um, absolutely, yep. And making sure that, you know, you take care of yourself, be well, because you're given one life, you want to, you know, you right. take care no, of it. So. I agree with that because you have to, um, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not able to take care of other people. Mm-hmm. And to be appreciative and grateful is something that is is a good character trait, I think. And I think it I think when you're not, you miss a lot, right? When you can look at the little things and be appreciative of those and the things that you get that may seem small to other people, but you're grateful for. The world outlook, in my opinion, look a little different. Mm-hmm. So I ascribe to that. So I agree. I, need, I don't need to agree, but I do. <laughs> but you do. <laughs> okay. Um, so I wanted to learn more about your work at LCC like what and what your roles are here because I ended up trying to find some information and was given your name, which probably wasn't really right, but you ended up being so nice and informative and giving me some good information. So I just wanted everybody in the community and LCC to know about it. So let us know what you do. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So uh, my role here at the college is I am the intake consultant for the Small Business Development Center. And what the Small Business Development Center is, or SBDC, is 
We are a uh, federally regulated organization, so um, we're actually in all 50 states and U.S. territories mm. for, uh, yep, for the United States. And what we do is we are a no-cost and confidential business consulting service, mm. um, and we do business education programs, workshops, seminars, webinars, things like that. But our primary service is that business consulting. So our consultants, they help folks with a litany of different things from starting a small business. So whether someone's just in the ideation phase of getting a business going, they maybe haven't started anything yet for Mm. their business. Our consultants can take someone through that whole startup process um, and whatnot. Um, and we also help existing business owners as well. And where I, where I fit in is um, I'm the intake. So I'm the uh, first point of contact for basically anyone who wants to reach out to the SBDC. So I kind of handle phone calls, walk-ins, emails. Okay. Kind of, that was originally my primary role. And then as time's gone on, I just have taken on more responsibilities like kind of managing our database, mm-hmm. uh, event management, wow. um, just hold a lot of different things to kind of keep the office together. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great, Seth. So did you say free? Free, yes, free 99. What? Mm-hmm. You See, pay- I love I love free, right? And that- 100%. I can't understand, like, I never heard of the small business. I never, I didn't know. So like, it's an affiliate with LCC or- because you said it's in all 50 states, so is it basically in community colleges or universities, both, what? Yeah, so good question. You got that mostly right. How it works is SBDCs need hosts to, um, well, let me back up for a minute. So um, the way the funding works for SBDCs to exist, so you technically pay for us through your tax dollars. That's okay. why, why we're free. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but how it works is the Small Business Administration, who's the federal entity, they provide the vast majority of funding to keep SBDCs operational. Okay. And then at the state level, state government provides some funding uh, to SBDCs. Here in Michigan is ME. DC, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've yeah. heard of them. Absolutely. And then at the local level, so in Michigan, we have 10 different regions across the state. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the capital region, and we serve the Enum, Eaton, and Clinton County area. Okay. And we are hosted through Lansing Community College. And Lansing LCC, they provide some uh, a little bit of funding as right, well. Right, yeah. For like in-kind things and stuff like right. that. Right, okay. yeah, exactly. And um, they act as our hosts. Okay. So um, we are, you know, part of LCC. We're part of the uh, CEWD division okay. or our CWED, Community Education Workforce Development. Yeah. But we work autonomously from the college, if okay. that makes sense. Yeah, no, so. it does. <laughs> but it, it's so, I'm so glad to know because... Because I'm like, this service is important for, you know, everybody, if you go online, everybody talking about starting your own business, right? Mm -hmm. And people jump out there and don't necessarily know all the things that they need to do to do that. And so you got a place that can help you figure out so that you can stop, you know, at least try not to make as many mistakes as some people do with no guidance at all. So I think that's super great. So now wait, Mm -hmm. so I can do this if I'm a new person that want to start a business or if I'm already an established business, I could hook up with you guys and then you guys will do like an assessment of my needs or do I come in and say, hey, I just need everything or I just need help in marketing or 
How does that work? Sure. Yeah. So to just kind of, well, I'll touch on, you know, both, both ends of the, of the spectrum, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for like someone looking to start a small business, we get a lot of folks who maybe they, a lot of them have never owned a business before. Right. And they have this, you know, idea that came to them or something. Um, I've literally had people say, oh, I thought of this idea this morning. <laughs> uh, call, call me. And yeah, no, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, and some of them, you know, like I, I just got this idea that came mm-hmm. into me for this, you know, small business. I want to, you know, you know, sell, you know, I want to start a restaurant or something or, um, you know, people love, you know, my crafts and I want to sell my crafts or uh-huh. something like that. I get a lot of folks who like that where they never owned a business before, but they have this idea, but they have no idea where to start. They've done maybe a little bit of research online. We kind of fill those gaps of what they need to think about to get something started. What does it take to get a small business going? And I'll be honest, sometimes our best work is talking someone out of going into business Mm. because it might not be the best, you know, the best step for them and whatnot. Or yeah, like the best. I mean, I think that's important too, right? Like, please tell me I'm wasting my money. (laughs) Please tell me my time is not going to be because I'm not there yet. Right. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's good to get some good insight to where you are. Right. What your you might have a good business idea, but if you don't have certain skill sets to to make them get to fruition, then why waste your money until you get to that point, right? Like get the education or certificates or partnerships or whatever you need, at least have someone like, I'm super excited about this because I'm going to start referring y'all to everybody. Okay. Because absolutely, I hear so <laughs> many people that say that they want to start a business and don't, you know, they go online, but sometimes you need other things beside online. You need people, you need human equity where they can tell you what to do. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm super geeked about that. And like I said, I'm probably going to be a big referral to you all because I see students that come in as an academic advisor mm-hmm. that are interested in starting their business. For sure. And so like, I mean, do you guys do like seminars or yeah. do you do things where people can like, hey, if you're thinking about a business, come in and talk to us and like give them an overview or something? Or? Yeah. So what we do is we have these uh, along with the consultant, um, the sec- the part of the our services are the workshops that we put on. And we have a whole litany of different topics that we cover. They can either be in person or we have them online as well. We have a whole library of on-demand uh, workshops as well. Wow. Um, I can send you that link too okay, um, yeah. to, to our website. So uh, they go on, um, like I said, any any topic. We have one on you know starting the business um, where one of our consultants will talk about the steps of starting a business and whatnot. Yeah. Um, take like an hour, hour and a half, just kind of to a group of people say, Hey, here's what you need to do. And like the basics and whatnot right. to get a business going. Um, we have one on, you know, writing the business plan. Yeah. That's and a lot. People need to get that started and stuff. Like I did not know that. I'm so, I'm so surprised. No. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll send you the link to our trainings and, you know, our library and things like yeah. that. And that's a big part too of our, um, of what we do is, you know, the trainings is, and that's where we start a lot of folks who have maybe not started something yet. Then they need that, you know, just dip their toes into something. Right. They need to see what it takes to get a business going. Um, maybe they're not ready for a consultant just yet. Yeah. And, oh, but see, that's good though. Mm-hmm. Like get you, here's where we'll step you out. Go to this step up, step A, then you get to two, whatever. 
Oh, that's so good. I'm so excited, Seth, that I <laughs> just randomly got in touch with you because oh, you're going to yeah. change people's lives with this. No, for sure. Yeah. And we used to call ourselves the best kept secret. And we're, we're starting to just because, you know, we're, you know, we don't market ourselves. We, we, we do. But. It's not like we're flying our flag right. around and like whatever, you got all you know? these advertising <laughs> dollars to do all of this and that. You know, it's not like you have you are federally funded and you're being a good stewards with people's money. So, well, I'm a big mouth and I'm going, I'm <laughs> running back to tell everybody about this. So because it's a resource that we can refer to people and then they can make a good assessment. And sometimes that helps them in career development and identifying majors and stuff like that. Sometimes if they get an idea that mm, business is not going to look just the way you think it's going to look, mm-hmm. you got to go through all these different steps. Are you prepared or may encourage them more? Right. Yep. So I think it's a good it's a good mix. And I think it's a good resource that we can help you know we can work together with but so i this is kind of off the cuff a little bit Mm -hmm. but you have a history major yes your bachelor's in history yes and a minor in sociology yes do you feel like what you learned helps you with this position that you have or do you feel like you just learn new skills and what like i'm just how you get there from what you do doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily sound like that's what you were initially starting out as. Right, right, yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a, uh, a good question. A lot of people ask me that. <laughs> originally, yeah, that's, I, I, you know, I got my, you know, degree in history um, and whatnot. I, I was originally aiming for computer science, but then I, I dropped that. So Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> uh, right, right. Uh, so, yeah, I was got my history degree and my minor in sociology. And I would say it's more in the end of picking up new things, you know, learning, you know, just different skills and whatnot. Definitely college, you know, taught me, you know, critical thinking skills or or enhanced them, I would say, and taught me different ways of learning, things like that. I would say not ne- necessarily the content of mm-hmm. What I what I learned, you know, helped translate to my current position. But I think just the overall structure of learning, mm-hmm. thinking, um, you know, implementing different yeah. practices, things like that, kind of helped. Yeah, the social skills that you need to interact with people, um, just and how to research, do different things like that. Mm-hmm. You learn, but yeah, that's how everybody. You know, a lot of people. They start out one thing and then they have a different type of career. Are you yep. looking to stay like in this area? Like, do you want to grow and do maybe consulting or do something else at some point? Yeah, so that's a good question. I'm actually thinking about looking back into the IT field at some point okay. um, in, in, in my career. So um, I, I, I still really enjoy, you know, what I do here because yeah. I, I love, you know, a lot of my past careers and whatnot have been or jobs, I would say, have been in, you know, hospitality, customer service. And mm-hmm. like, so I always like working with just people and public. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Working with the public, meeting new people, learning about them, things like that. Definitely still enjoy, you know, what right, I do. Right. Yeah, of course. I just know it seemed like you're such a bright young man and oh, um, you'll be able to do like whatever you put your mind to. So I was just curious to me, like what you thought that you want to do. So no, for sure. Absolutely. Um, how did you get started at LCC? Yeah, so how I got started is, so before LCC, I worked, um, after I graduated from uh, Michigan State, I went to work for Shinola, Detroit, which is 
a company uh, based out of Detroit, um, but they have several different stores across the country. And I worked specifically in the Ann Arbor store. And what Shinola is, for folks who don't know, is... Yeah, because I didn't have a clue. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. So uh, Shinola originally started as a, a watchmaking company, and they marketed themselves as a watch company made in like this kind of built in Detroit type mm -hmm. motif per se. Okay. And they, they made watches and then they expanded into leather goods because they made their own leather straps and they now they they made bags, leather bags, okay. uh, you know, things like that, purses. So nice that. quality yeah. types of uh, accessories or different things like that? Yeah, so um, they've kind of gone crazy with the, with the products <laughs> that they've made. So they, you know, watches, leather goods, they make bicycles, they make jewelry. Wow. Um, yeah, um, what else? They make pens, notebooks, a whole litany of odds and ends, I yeah. would say. That's cool. I never heard of that and I was, when I was reviewing the information, I was like, this is something I've never heard of. Mm -hmm. I was excited to hear about it. And so you left them in 2019? Correct. Yep. So so I worked for them through part of 2019. And then I kind of just wanted to come back home to, you know, to the area and whatnot, just to kind of refocus myself yeah. and whatnot. And so I was poking through um, some some jobs and I uh, went on LCC's website to see, you know, what was available here. Uh, and I stumbled across my position. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, okay, this, you know, fits my skill set. Right. You know? um, you know, I'm good with people and whatnot. So I applied, had a, a great interview with some of my coworkers that are, who are still here were on my interview panel. And, and then, you know, I was lucky enough to get chosen for the position and, you know, the rest is history. Hey, that's <laughs> right. And we're so glad that you're here because um, you sound like you know what you're talking about and can help students or community members or whoever get to the right people. For sure. No, so well, what do you like most about what you do here at LCC? I like working with my coworkers. When I say coworkers, I mean not just my immediate coworkers, right. but folks like you, folks, anyone at yeah. the college, you know, they always seem, they're always friendly, always seem eager to participate in whatever you got going on. Right. So, um, so I, you know, I enjoy that as really enjoy that aspect of it. I, I, you know, I, I enjoy the job itself. I enjoy learning about different people's ideas, mm -hmm. you know, helping them with whatever I can help them with, pointing them to the right resources. And I just, you know, I like the college in general, you know, I took some classes here too, as a student. Um, okay. And I enjoyed my time here, you know, as a student too. So I enjoy this is the college atmosphere and being part of community and yeah. you know, serving the community. Well, that's good. You you said that you like people, so that sounds about right, that that's where <laughs> he, you like dealing with the public For and sure. the people and stuff like that. So I read a list off about 100 hobbies, <laughs> but um, I'm just trying to see, like, what are your hobbies and like how did you get into them and I mean you got so many of them so we can't go into them but give me your yeah, top three <laughs> what are your top three hobbies Ooh, you think top three I would say mm, anything car related I'm a huge car nut I got into that like old school cars or just new uh, school or just anything car culture just in general I'll okay. say I, I don't I don't judge so okay. <laughs> um, uh, so any 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 anything uh, you know Four wheels, two wheels, motorcycles. I like uh, boats, anything motor vehicle okay. kind of related. Um, but cars definitely um, 
the number one, I would say. Okay. Um, and my dad kind of got me into that because he's a car guy too. So, uh, okay. so it started, it started yeah. guns. I caught yeah. the buggy on. So. Yeah. <laughs> number two, I, I'll go in no particular order. So, okay. <laughs> but we um, know cars is one. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll go cars <laughs> one. So, I would say, uh, oh, it's so, so many. <laughs> Probably. Video games and board games would be next. I've you know always been surrounded by video games mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Um, my dad, he again, yeah, you know, my dad, he uh, he was the tech director for a school district for many years. He's retired now, but okay. but he always had you know computers and you know just technology around the house ever since I was a kid, and obviously that included video games and right. whatnot. So caught that bug pretty early, um, and I'm still into them these um, you know to today, um, and you know board games too just video games without the digital aspect to it so okay yeah. um so and, and you know same same sort of concept um, that's old school board games mm-hmm. you still young to be i'm you i'm old but uh, <laughs> it's normally like a lot of people your age didn't really get into board games so that influence of your dad came through on that as well i yeah that and um i would say as well I was just, I feel like I was just drawn to them as well. You mm-hmm. know, I just had a uh, an affinity to them, per what se. What board game would you like? Oh, one of them there's, there's you... quite a few. Um, Settlers of Catan is a fun one. There's a tabletop game called Warhammer 40,000, which uh, is really fun. See, yeah, I don't know none of these games. <laughs> yeah, I'm just... I know, just... <laughs> I know uh, Candyland. Oh, yeah, Candyland's <laughs> a fun one. Uh, sorry, Clue, Monopoly. So those are all good ones. Okay. Uh, they're classic. Classics, Ticket to Ride. Yeah, um, those, those are those are all classic uh, board games. I like all, pretty, you know, all of them pretty much. Right. Um, I, I like the, the the niche stuff too. Yeah, that's um, interesting though. You won't be. You're not someone that's tied to the. Even though you like technology, not tied to it, you can go ahead and use a board game and go oh, yeah. back and play Card back games, in the yeah. day. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we had cars. Gaming. Gaming. And oh, what's the third one? Um, oh, geez. <laughs> I'm, oh, can, can I have a tie? Yeah, you can three? have Because <laughs> uh, they, they kind of go together somewhat. Okay. So photography and I'll go with like outdoor activities like hiking. Okay, long, yeah. Skateboarding, snowboarding, things like that. Yeah, so, that's a um, free expression, art stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, photography. Um, I've always just like taking pictures of of things, Um, especially, you know, um, hiking and things like that. Nature is it's 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 so, you know, if, if you just take a moment on a hike or something like that, um, you know, just take a moment to, you know, look at your surroundings and whatnot and just take it all in. Obviously, that's great to experience in person, but you want to save those moments too. Right. So, and be, um, yeah, have them for later and exactly. just be able to re- review them. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And that kind of got me into photography. And then I, you know, I like, you know, just taking pictures of things. So, and, you know, I'll, I'll just tie that in with the outdoor activities. Yeah, so. that's cool. <laughs> well, Seth, I mean, Seth, we've been talking like it, it's, time is going by quick and I didn't even realize. Oh, how long has it been? <laughs> because you've given me, you know, um, so much information and so much about the small business uh, play. But I want to ask you, what's the career highlight you're most proud of? 
Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I would say probably the one I'm most proud of is uh, in 2020, I won the uh, Intake Consultant of the Year Award for our state. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, I, I was totally not expecting it. <laughs> and I, you know, am still, you know, okay if I would not have gotten it. Yeah, um, but that's all right. Your peers and your supervisor and stuff, they had to nominate you, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our, our administrative staff at our lead center in Grand Rapids, you know, they took a poll, I think, of all the directors across the state, things like that, or, uh, or they did something, this, some sort of poll they did or something, and I ended up on top somehow. Hey, so. that's wonderful, Seth. I mean, that's a, a great accolade to have. No, thank Even you. Even though you weren't trying it, so that means you just give good work and you people noticed it. So that's exactly. a good thing. Yep. And like I said... I have a lot more questions to ask you, but I don't have a lot more time. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm going to wind down and thank you for coming today. And thank you for being so open and letting us learn about what you do here on the college. And people, you need to get in touch with him because... <laughs> This is some good stuff out there, and I think that it's something that can help you. And so I, I just thank you, Seth, for coming. You got any closing thoughts or words for us? Um, you know, no, I just want to thank you, Lisa, you know, for inviting me onto the podcast. I, I had no idea that this was a thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, um, so it was great to learn about it. Um, and I'll definitely be listening to more. Um, and you know, hit up Lisa if you want to be on the podcast, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> yes. right, LCC people, come on, we need you. Yeah. But yes, as I do, I thank you. And um audience, I will see you soon. Take care, and we are out. You've been listening to Who's That Star? I'm Lisa A., and you can listen to this episode of Who's That Star and other shows from LCC Connect anytime online at lccconnect.org. Thank you for listening. Catch me next time to find out Who's That Star? Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College's dual enrollment program offers the opportunity for qualified high school students to earn college credit while working towards their high school diploma. Dual enrollment lets students receive educational advancement in areas where the student's interest is displayed, especially in courses and academic areas not available in the student's high school. To find out more information about dual enrollment, visit lcc.edu. Look through your children's eyes and you'll see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure in pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. When they discover the forest, their imagination is inspired by the smell of pine, the crunch of leaves beneath their feet, the sound of birds calling out for attention. And they see you, their fearless guide to this fascinating forest world. You are the hero in this book. This is a memory being made. This is what they will laugh about years from now. 
These are the roots, grounding and nourishing them. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Then look through your children's eyes and discover the magic all around you. That's discovertheforest.org, brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Vision.